Good morning. Food lovers everywhere. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. Um, and today we're acknowledging that uh, the spice is with us, like the force. There you go. <laughs> we're going to start out with um, Christine Sahadi Whelan um, of Sahadi's Flavors of the Sun. That's her book that she just wrote, which talks about all the different um, uh, recipes you could, uh, from the extended Middle Eastern um, culinary yeah, traditions. Yeah. I mean, it's not just one, although um, apparently that's the direction everything's moving into, a singular mm-hmm. Middle mm-hmm. Eastern cuisine. This, this family's been in the business since about 1860, yeah, and, and they, they, they managed to move all the way from one part of New York to another part of New York, <laughs> and they're, they're, now, they're now, now in Brooklyn. Who, who the hell isn't in Brooklyn? <laughs> but anyway, let's hear from Christine. Christine Sahadi Whelan. Well, I found a new favorite cookbook, listeners, called Flavors of the Sun, the Sahadi's Guide to Understanding, Buying, and Using, very important, Middle Eastern ingredients. And we're going to be talking to Christine Sahadi Whelan. <laughs> so I said, she, had, she married an Irishman. But your background... The history of, of um, your your shop, which is a gourmet uh, supplier, and I think you've even expanded beyond just strictly Middle Eastern food, haven't you? Yes, very much. We do we do all international now. I mean, we're you know as the neighborhood and as the customer base evolves, um, you know, we brought in things that the you know that the customers were asking for. Our base is still Middle Eastern, but even a lot of the Middle Eastern items we bring in now are very boutiquey and a little bit more. You know, not not the typical items. We try to we try to curate our our product mix. Um, we we have buyers on the ground in in Lebanon, so it's you know we we always can see what's new and interesting, and um, you know we try to bring it in. The customers are are great, and they love to try new things. Well, it, it started. T- tell us the brief history of, of the the shop, and you're in Brooklyn. Sure. Yeah, we're in Brooklyn. Um, in 1895, um, my my great uncle started a shop in Lower Manhattan at the time, which was called Little Syria. And um, in um, 1919, my grandfather joined him. And um, a few years later, they met about 20 years later, my grandfather wanted to break off on his own. So he bought a building in Brooklyn. Um, and in 1948, he, he moved his shop to, um, to our footprint today, which is um, 187 Atlantic Avenue. And um, and then we expanded twice from there. But the original store is still um, incorporated in our footprint, and um, and we're still uh, obviously we're still we're now fourth generation. Um, my both of my children work with us now. And, well, that's um, amazing, isn't it? When you think about that, how many businesses last in, in a family for that long, huh? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a really it's been a great run. We have a great customer base, and Brooklyn is a really great place to do business in the food world. So um, uh-huh, right. we've had a lot of opportunities to, to expand and to, you know, expand our customer base. And, um, you know, we do shipping and, and other things. And we put in our kitchen in 2012. So um, I'm sorry, no, we put in our kitchen in 86. The last expansion was in 2012. So in 1986, we put our kitchen in, which is the base now for our catering. And, um, you know, we do a lot of, uh, you know, office catering and, and party catering and stuff like that as well as, you know, the store. Fulfilling well, now your background is... Is uh, Lebanese on one side, but your mother was Syrian, you say? Yes, my mother is Syrian. So I have, I got the advantage to having 
both sides of the family, which have slightly different cuisines. And I had the I had the very good fortune to be able to look over both my um, my father's aunt's shoulder and my maternal grandmother's shoulder. So I right. learned a lot, at, you know, um, organically at home. Wow. Well, and of course, my mother's a great cook. So. How how did, how did Lebanese cuisine get to be so French? Uh, Lebanon was French occupied for a really long time. So, um, like all of my family went to a French went to French boarding schools. Um, everything they all speak French. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the culture there is is French based. I mean, they, they have a very very um, rich wine culture there which you don't traditionally see in the Middle East, and that's because the French were there for a really long time. So they settled and they brought vines. And, I mean, of course, they do have indigenous grapes, but a lot of the grapes and the varieties that you see in, the middle, in, in Lebanon especially are French. I, rem- I remember we, we went to a Lebanese restaurant in London. It would have been probably 10 or 15 years ago, right, sweetheart? I think, yeah. And, and, we, and we had both white and red wines from Lebanon, both of which were quite excellent, I should tell you. Yeah. The most remarkable thing was how they loaded the table with food. That's very traditional. Oh, yeah. there, were, there, were, there were only two of us. I'm not sure I understand how we made it all the way to the end. <laughs> of the well, now, um, back to your book. It's a real treasure. Um I, I like the way it's organized, which is not your usual um, cookbook-style organization. You break it up into chapters with descriptive themes. The first one is bright. The second one is savory. The third one is spiced. The fourth is nutty. And the fifth is sweet. Um, can you sort of walk us through some of those um, what you're looking at, and, and I want to point out that you you have um, something really important is how to use these. You know, the, the um, what do you call that section? Okay. A lot of people now are, can I say, hooked on uh, Middle Eastern cuisine, but um, they don't necessarily know how to either make the food at home or to how to put it together. Yeah, we did. We did. The, one of the reasons that the book is structured the way it is is because of customer requests. Customers okay. would constantly say, "I bought this for a recipe, and now I don't know what to do with it." You know, <laughs> I have I have jars and jars of stuff in my closet, and I and, and I'm at a loss. And um, and I would talk to them in the store, and, and I would give them quote unquote tips. We, you know, I would tell them, "Well, I would do this with it, or this with it," and we 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 talk through different uses for it. So then when it came time to do the book, it seems, I mean, it's, it's unique, but it's, to, to Sahadi's, it's the way, that we, um, the way that we converse with the customers. So I figured it would be a good way to, to you know, to, to introduce some items that people may or may not know how to use. Yeah, well, you do, and you also on. give tips on, on how to purchase them and what to look for, and some of the things are... I was really taken on the web, probably I'm jumping ahead, um, with your, your, your um, writings about pine nuts, pinoli pine nuts. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I stopped buying, well, 
I, I, even with pesto, I don't even use it because it's so expensive <laughs> anymore. Of course. But I, I did buy um, Chinese for a while, and I had no idea uh, that you could tell what they were because of the dark tips. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, no, you have to you have to go over the story, sweetheart, because you gave me you gave me a shopping list of things when you were you were going to make pesto, and on the list was pine nuts, and pine nuts were forty eight dollars a pound, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I was a thoroughly obedient husband, and I bought a pound. It was probably a pound and a half of. Oh my nuts. gosh! Because <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> if the wife says jump, you jump. Or you say, first of all, you say so high, how high, <laughs> and then you say the quantity that's required to satisfy the, the lady in the kitchen. Well, you're very thoughtful. Well, you're a very thoughtful husband. That we just couldn't. I mean, it didn't make any sense to me if we, if you were making your own pesto because you had herbs in the garden, why you would spend that on the nuts? <laughs> that didn't make any sense. Well, we stopped. Yeah. And we, what, what, what did you put in its place? We we stopped using. Pine well, I mean, I didn't want to use anything from China after all this. Scandals, exactly. you know, of, of their product delivery and stuff. When I found out that they were actually um, diluting and poisoning formula, baby formula, I said, I'm not buying any more the stuff from China. So, we, so instead of um, paying that outrageous sum of money, although it's very tedious to uh, grow and harvest uh, pine nuts, I understand that. Um, but we, we just use walnuts, and it's, it's okay. So, so there you go. I mean, it's, there's so much flexibility in, in cooking that it's just really a matter of what, what you personally like. You know, you, some yeah. people like almonds. Some people like, well, sometimes I'll use almonds. Sometimes I'll use more. I kind of use whatever feels like it goes for the day or truthfully what I have. But right. Um, right. any one I, of those is going to be one-tenth the price of pine nuts, though. So, the, um, so how, how should we – I mean, I, I loved all your – ways of using preserved lemons because it's a production you get these lemons and you preserve them and you watch them to see that they're getting right and so forth and so on and they keep a long time in the refrigerator but how best to use them and how many different things do you have for how to use all these ingredients what number of recipes or suggestions i'm looking for one here I think there's like about a dozen that we ended up settling on the most, the ones that we thought were for each chapter were the most, um, there's 10 for each one, but like the most, I guess the most accessible uses, you know, some things that, you, that are, I wanted people to not be intimidated to buy something and try it. I wanted them to go, you know what, if I buy this, I can also do like halva. You could just eat it as dessert, but I wanted people to realize that you can put it in hot chocolate. You can sprinkle it on top of ice cream. We put it in cookies at the store. Um, but it, it can have a lot of uses. So if you buy it and you eat it and you're like, okay, well, I've eaten, you know, a quarter of it and now I've got the rest of it, that there's a lot of really interesting things you can do with it. You can put it in pancakes, things that people might not automatically think of, but but tips that are accessible to people because you may be making pancakes anyway and wouldn't it be nice to have a little twist on that? Well, you, I mean, your recipes are really creative. I mean, I should point out, by the way, that, that you also have a culinary degree, your business and culinary, right? I do both. Yeah, I mean, I spent I spent eight, about eighteen months doing culinary studies, 
And um, and I have a and I went to NYU for my regular um, you know, my science degree. But at the time, there were no culinary degrees that were bachelors. Like now, they're all over, but there wasn't at the time. And I wanted to satisfy both. You know, and I think that you know, it's a good base for a, for a businesswoman whose whose passion is food. Yeah, <laughs> you give a lot of attention to Zatar, which is one of those things we put it on everything. <laughs> We do too, everything. And people are like, how much, how many things can you put it on? I'm like, I don't know, it tastes pretty good on almost things I use it on. Yeah, I mean, on everything. I found that the, the, uh, the one that I'm in love with at the moment is, um, um, what is it, black, black lime? Is this rabbit? Black, black lime we like a lot. Yeah. That's black a good lime? One. Black lime, yeah. Um, We were introduced to blackened limes um, by a French chef in in, um, England, and uh, he made his own. And and I I tried making it, and it takes forever to get – you just put the lime on the shelf. Hmm? Oh, is that what you do? It's interesting. I've never made my own. I mean, we we call them – we call them dried lemons because, I don't know, the Lebanese call them lemons. The rest of the Middle East calls them limes. But um, okay. we 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 um I've never seen anybody make their own. That's interesting. How long did it take you to make? Well, <laughs> I've already told the story a million times. Uh, it it just sits there, you know, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And uh, it was about the time when I was considering it done, and my housekeeper threw it out. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so I'm really happy to be able to get it in, in a jar, in a, for burlap and barrel. You know those guys? Yeah. Yeah. They're good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're very yeah, nice. Yeah, they're very nice. They're very nice. Yeah. So yeah. now, what are some of your favorite things? I have to tell you, um, you go on about um, uh, uh, pistachios. That's my most favorite nut in the whole world. I love them. Yeah, but you, know, you told me something I didn't know that in terms of the size versus the color. Tell our listeners about that. Well, there's 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 the, the flip side of the pistachios from California and the pistachios mm-hmm. from Turkey are are totally different. Um, yeah. We have uses for both. The California nut is a big round nut. It looks beautiful. It's really round. It, it's very green, but it doesn't um, it doesn't ever get as hard as a Turkish nut. The Turkish mm-hmm. nut is going to be a harder nut and it's going to be a different shape. Um, the, the 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 nuts that are really the preference of all of us are Iranian, but um, we're not allowed to import those right now, so that would be somewhere in between. Iranian is like a Sicilian style, but the Turkish style, I think, is the most, is the most uh, closely mimicking the flavor, but the one that you see here is California, so California, you really have to cook very well. We roast our own, and you really have to cook them very, very well to get that same crunch that you get yeah. more naturally on a Middle Eastern pistachio. Now, Remind me again why why they used to be painted pink. Oh, do you remember when they died? Were dyed yeah. red? I do. When I was young, when I was little, they were red. Um, I, that was primarily so Turkey does not die. They're not. At least I've never seen them died. But that was primarily um, in the to cover the ones that were not had some imperfections on the exterior of the okay. shell. So they, it, there was nothing wrong with the nut, but on the exterior of the shell, it might have been like, like now they would just shell those and sell them as shells, but years ago, shells weren't as popular, so mm-hmm. they dyed them. Um, I personally don't like to eat anything dyed, so I don't know if I've ever had them, 
but I used to sell them. I mean, because it was a thing, you know, we, we did used to sell yeah. them, but, um, well, they make they your, your fingers red, you know, I mean, that dye comes off on your hands. Yes, it probably comes off my stomach too, which is the reason why I don't eat I don't eat things that are uh, with that kind of dye in them. And we never ate them at home because they weren't traditional in Lebanese or Syrian households. We always just ate regular ones. Just like we never eat shelled pistachios. It's not. Uh-huh. We always eat pistachios in the shell. It gives the guests something to do. There's like that sense of convivial conversation, hospitality that happens. Yeah, um, I thought that was when, cute. You said that about how you always be hospitable. You have to put out a little dish of, of nuts or something, and, and particularly with the, the ones with the shells on because it gives people something to do with their hands. Yeah, exactly. It's just part of conversation there. Yeah, and they, it cuts down on how much you consume as well because you're busy doing that. <laughs> Agreed, definitely. <laughs> well, you know, we, we've seen this enormous increase in um, people's interest in spices, and again, I mean, I don't know that everybody knows what to do with them. And I, I find that, that chapter three in your book called Spiced, um, for hot, warming, and smoky, uh, was, was really interesting because they cover all these trendy, really trending spices. And yet I bet you half the people who buy that don't know what to do with them. I mean, Ross El Hanout, I mean, we use that a lot, but what do we use that on, Rabbit? What is it again? Tell me what it the is. The one, Ras El Hanout. I don't know. I don't recall ever using it. Yeah, I mean, you've used it, I mean, because I know where it is. Okay. I probably, <laughs> probably don't know where it is. I'll, I'll have to use it. It's, a, it's a Moroccan seasoning. It's like a, a yeah. mixed Moroccan seasoning. Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, what what this... Uh, Berbera is that can be pretty spicy. Ours is not terribly spicy. Um, we make our own in house. Um, we make our, all our own high spice blends in house. So we toast the spices in house, and then we um, we mix our blends how we like it. Um, ours is not terribly spicy, but it's super um, flavorful. It like hits every flavor profile in your mouth. But it's I mean it's got it's got a little kick to it, but it's not. I I could sprinkle it on a salad, and nobody would be like, oh my god, the salad is so hot. But it adds a really good depth of flavor because it's a it's a it's a pretty broad mix of spices, and we toast and leave some of the seeds whole, so you're getting a little textural difference in there, um, and that gives I feel like it gives a good round 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 flavor for this thing. I, I use it obviously I use it in a lot of things. I mean I use it at home all the time. I tend to use a lot of our blends because well the, I we, the, I was the original one who started to blend the spices. And it just makes it a little bit easier than having a million smaller spices in the closet. When I know I'm going to do Middle Eastern, I just make sure that I have the blends because they're blended exactly like we wanted them to be. And I think they make a, they make a weeknight dinner much, much quicker. It's, you know, you, some olive oil, some seasoning mix, maybe 20 minutes of marinating and, you know, grill and plate with some greens. It makes things move along you know, a little bit quicker. I mean, you could see by the book, that's how I cook a lot of things. I mean, I have my winter dishes and my braised dishes, but in the summer, I'm very much a Mediterranean person at heart. I mean, you know, just like they do over there, a lot of stuff is done on the grill, so seasoning blends make it really, make it really a big difference. You know, with simple foods, seasoned well, and, and cooked properly. Well, that's, that's the answer. You got it. <laughs> chicken, it would be good, Christine? Cause, cause I'm sorry? On... on on chicken, it would be good? Yes, 
it would be very and chicken thighs. You know, we always eat chicken thighs, and she has recipes for how you make those a, a little more interesting. Oh, okay, good. Chicken thighs are my favorite. I love chicken thighs because they stay nice and moist, so I use them in a lot of things. Yeah, yeah we yeah, do too. too. So, um, yeah, I mean, who was it that said use the, the thighs of the chicken to throw the breasts away? It's <laughs> all the flavors <laughs> of the thighs. <laughs> Mario Batali was Mario Batali. We, we, don't, we don't care for oh, him. It, it, it was in his book. Okay. That's funny. He said they should, they should ban chicken, chicken breasts or throw them to the dogs. <laughs> wow, that's strong feelings. I mean, me, I, I, I will use a lot of people like breasts. I feel like breasts are good if you want to make a sandwich cold. Like I'll, I'll grill something in the evening and then we'll eat the thighs hot. And then maybe the next day I'll make my, you know, I'll make myself and my husband a sandwich um, with the cold chicken because, you know, it could be, it could be hot in New York and sometimes, and I just don't feel like, you know, having a hot meal. And you can, you know, but I feel breasts are good for that because you can put some nice tomatoes and some other things on that sandwich. Now, you have, um, this has always been curious to me, you have a, a whole um, chapter here on uh, Duca, Duca, whatever how it's pronounced. Yes. My first exposure to this was any Indian restaurant in the United States you went into, um, they would have a bowl of this at the checkout counter, and I was told it was to aid digestion. Well, you suggested that's really not the case at all. Tell us about Duca. Duca is one of my favorite seasonings, and I think it's very under known. It's very, it's not very well known, and um, it's a, it's an Egyptian seasoning, as far as I know. Um, that's well, that's my area of the world, so that's where I learned about it. Um, so we take we roast all our nuts in house, and then we take those nuts and we use them to do to make Duca. So they're blended, um, you know, with all the herbs and all the seasonings, and then um, we use it as a as a basically as a mixed spice. So I'll put it on. Um, I put it in deviled eggs, obviously, from the recipe. Um, I'll throw it into an um, shachuca. I want to add a little bit of, you know, um, that's one in the book, but I do do it that way. Um, or we just mix it with olive oil and put it on the table as a dipping thing. So sometimes, like in an Italian restaurant, they'll put olive oil with balsamic. In, yeah. um, it, at my cafe, we'll often put just duca with olive oil and some exactly. um, fresh baked pita, so you can just kind of scoop it. But my personal favorite way is to dip vegetables in there because I feel like, uh, well, at least in Brooklyn, we get a lot of requests for uh, gluten-free, you know, so, so we'll do, instead of doing bread, we'll do fresh vegetable spears. And I feel like it really, the crunch of the spear with the smoothness of the olive oil and then the extra crunch of the nuts with the, all the seasonings behind it, Makes a really good, um, a really good savory intro to a meal. Um, yeah, no, the way you're explaining things, it, it reminds me that one of the really um, amazing and wonderful things about this cookbook is how well you write. <laughs> you know, I mean, Sometimes your cookbooks are really pretty basic and not very well written, but yours actually has a style to it. Oh, thank you very much. I write kind of like I talk, but um, yeah, well, that's what I was. That's what reminded me of it. Yeah. Now, I, mean, I was intrigued by your mom's million-dollar salad. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we call it at home, and I was like, we were talking about changing the name for the book. And every time my mother makes it, she says. Now there's the million dollar salad, and between the, the, the <laughs> Reggiano Parmesan and the pine nuts 
and the high-end olive oil. Should we look at this? And do we have big parties? So when we make it, we often make it for, I mean, sometimes we make it just for families, but sometimes, like, we'll do 120 at her place in Pennsylvania. So it's a big salad. And we look at the end, and we're like, wow, that was, that was some salad. But it's so good. And the combination of the toasted pine nuts is in, in the salad with the oil and with the, you know, with the parm, and then with all the fresh vegetables is just really nice. It it never fails to get a you know a, a comment from from somebody at the table. Never. <laughs> now the an, another recipe that I'm going to pursue is this. Everybody makes roasted cauliflower. I have never made roasted cauliflower that tasted like anything but cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but you have a recipe that might actually accomplish something for me. It's roasted cauliflower salad with lentils, which we adore, and dates. That's, listeners, this is an example of, of how elevated these recipes are. Um, whatever twist she adds to it is of infinite interest. So how did you hit Thank on you. this one? Um, wow. You know, so much of it just happened organically when we were playing around with items that we could use in the actual deli at the store. And we tried to, uh, based on, I mean, we're, we're an ingredient store, so a lot of what I have is, is commodities. So you have to think of different ways to, you know, to change the flavor profile or elevate the dish using what I already have in the store because it makes more sense for us to do that. And I feel like cauliflower is a fall vegetable, and, and we always have all of our fresh um dried fruits come in in the fall. So the cauliflower is, you know, it, it's, it's the right time of year for a dish that has a little bit more body with the lentils and, um, and the slight sweetness and the depth of flavor as well as the lushness of medjool dates, which I love. I use them in a lot of things. Um, I think it just, it, it just kind of worked for me. We were putting it together. We were looking at it. We were like, sometimes all of those ingredients separately could be very dark and dull. So we were trying to figure out if the if the you know the ingredients if the larger would be if the dish compiled would look better than the individual ingredients and when we made it it did the flavors really popped the 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 textures were great because cauliflower is a little bit like on the crunchier side and lentils are you know smooth and and the date is is very um, luscious so altogether it just seemed to work. Well, it sounds heavenly. And, um, of course, you have halva, you have desserts. Um, yes, listeners, there are plenty of desserts. You know, one thing that, I, for some reason, they weren't giving review copies of Middle Eastern sweets away. I think the author is ill. Do you uh, know that one, Middle Eastern sweets? I don't. I, I don't have it. I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't have it. Well, I don't have it either. I've wondered it. Because, I mean, I think sweets are a strong point for, because I, I don't have a sweet tooth, but boy, if, if I'm going to have something uh, sweet, I'm going to have something like dead sweet, like baklava. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to really enjoy it, and you should. Yeah. And the, I think you're going to get a lot of flack for one recipe that's not going to fly very well uh, with our, our young Americans, is rose water marshmallows. <laughs> You, you can't muck around with with marshmallows. <laughs> but they look so pretty, and they float so nice on the hot chocolate. The I'm little ones probably pretty. won't like it, but the adults are good. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, again, listeners, you really need to check out um, the, the book, The Flavors of the Sun. 
and also um, by Christine Shahadi Whalen, um, and also um, the, the, your website, which you should give us that website so that uh, it, people can order these wonderful ingredients, and now you have the book that tells them what to do with them. So what's your Great. website? You can order right off the website, right? Sure, yeah. You just have to go to www.sahadis.com. And, um, and click on shipping, and uh, the, the, all the shipping pages will come up, and lots of, most of the ingredients that are in this book that are available here will all be, you know, are all uploaded and, and ready to go. And if questions or any questions, then people just email us, and we, we get right back to them. Yeah, well, I can't wait to get on that and order some of this stuff. It sounds so good. I hope your preserved lemons are as good as mine, because I'm getting tired of making them. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> So, well, thank you for talking to us, uh, Christine, and it's been a delight. And if we ever thank get so to travel again, me. pardon? I thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we ever get to travel again, maybe I'll see you in the shop. <laughs> I hope so. I'm here all the time, uh, and I love to see people coming and visit. Well, we'd like to visit, too. Enough of this stuff, right? <laughs> yep. I'm with you. Yeah. Well, all right. Thank you, and have a great rest of the day. You too. Thank you both so much. Bye-bye now. Now, now you'll... Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Next up, we have our favorite spice guy, Ori Zohar of Fertile and Barrel, now, talking to us about a number of things, including a very essential um, view into this condition of small farmers that supply them with many of, of their, their uh, spices um, it, from Afghanistan and uh, at this critical mm-hmm. moment in Afghanistan history. And they're all, they're all over the place as well. I mean, they bring they bring things in from Africa. They bring things in from. I think he already said they have a spice from the United States. For the they they held it, yeah. In, but in but what started it all off was um, actually it was Ethan being in Afghanistan, and uh, he's um, he's he started meeting these small farmers, and that's essential to their business, knowing who these people are. Uh, how they grow, what they grow. He's also going to introduce us to, to, to me, new spices, two new spices, although I have to tell you that that mango thing is, I've been using it on everything, and I can't wait to pour it all over my eggplant when I cook it in a few days. Well, we're going to have Ori. Ori coming up, huh? Yes, Ori. Well, we're, we're happy to be talking again to Ori Zohar, of burlap and barrel, um, even in sad times, he brings uh, uh, introspection and, um, and a wisdom to this, as does his partner Ethan. Um, let's just start, Ori, with I was very moved to receive the report that was in your newsletter. And by the way, if anybody wants to get on this newsletter, they should go to your website and sign up for it because it's it's full of information. It's burlap and barrel, right? Yes. Yep. 
And um, though, but this report is called "A Letter from the Founders." Can you give us a, just a, a short summation of what your, your purpose was in, in tracing back this brief history? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you for reading that and, and calling it out. Um, we're a public benefit corporation, and as a social enterprise, we publish an update on our impact and how we measure it every single year in a transparent way. And so we were getting ready to publish our 2020 impact report for how many spices we bought, the premiums we paid to farmers, what our business looked like all across the world, because our impact is around paying farmers above market prices for their spices and setting them up to control their own supply chain. Um, but we wanted to make sure to, A, acknowledge the last year where so many food businesses went, went out of business and how we've been working to donate and support and, and do free, and share free spices and all of that. Um, but we also wanted to kind of acknowledge the situation in Afghanistan. We bring in cumin and saffron from Afghanistan. We work really closely with our partner farmers there. And we have about 4,000 kilograms of saffron that we had harvested uh, this year. And, it's good and stuff, that saw, saffron. Afghanistan yeah, saffron is really good. Really fragrant. They're small seeds. It's a type of cumin that's actually called a black cumin. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's really fragrant and wonderful. But um, when we saw the situation was getting uh, more questionable, more uncertain in Afghanistan, um, we saw the beginnings of, of the potential for a humanitarian crisis, um, mm-hmm. which was a few weeks ago. We just forwarded the rest of the payment over to the foragers to just make sure we figured the money would be better in their hands than, than mm-hmm. in our hands, um, that it might be hard to get money into the country, which, which it turns out is, is becoming more and more true, and that we would eventually get the cumin, that, you know, maybe it'll be months, maybe it'll be longer, like who knows, but you know, we wanted to just accelerate the payment to them, make sure that they had the means to kind of support themselves through through holding up our end of the deal with, for the spices, um, and that there are bigger priorities than getting cumin, you know, out of Afghanistan right now. So we'll, we'll, we'll sit and wait. We'll be patient. But we just wanted to make sure we could kind of expedite the payment to them uh, during this really, really challenging time. And you, you have a personal or Ethan yeah, has a personal a few, connection. said a few minutes ago that, that your, your partner actually has a, a personal stake in Afghanistan. Yeah, Can yeah. My co-founder, Ethan, uh, was an aid worker. He got his master's in international development in London, and then he moved to Afghanistan as an aid worker to work for the Aga Khan Foundation, where he was there for the better part of three years. And so he was working in Afghanistan on infrastructure projects, spent a lot of time there, and actually our first spice that we ever imported was this wild mountain cumin from Afghanistan that kind of he had brought back in his backpack on trips back home. And his chef friends were like, oh, my God, this cumin, I've never had anything like it. And so the light bulb went off that maybe there's an opportunity to do a well-sourced spice business. And so that was, you know, years and years ago. And our co-founder, in fact, also met the woman that is now his wife, uh, who is in Afghan-American, and so they have deep connections and deep roots to the country, and so it's been a quite a quite a painful uh, uh, few weeks to watch the situation develop. Well, I, lo- I love that wild mountain cumin. I, I dust fish with it all the time. In fact, we have cod cheeks for dinner tonight. Guess what? Oh my God! And I wasn't invited. <laughs> <laughs> we'll 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 mail you a cheek. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, so we should, now, um, I mean, we should from arrive your, on time too. 
from your yeah. your cl- close perspective there um would you venture to say what's give some evaluation of the events in Afghanistan currently um you know what like our really like what we're thinking about is just like so often like we just think about this from a humanitarian perspective of what do yes. people need to live their lives, live in safety, live without fear, live with, with you know, access to prosperity. Um, and so, you know, it, it's at a time of so much uncertainty, you know, I have friends here in the U.S. that are thinking, what city do I want to live in and where do I, where do I want to work and how do I want to work? And that you have a luxury to kind of think about those things where, where everything is stable around you. And in periods of instability, all that kind of goes out the window and you just think about your health and your safety and, and your next meal. And so it's just, it's just heartbreaking to see where things happened. I'm not here to point fingers or to have any in-depth, you know, analysis. There are people that are way smarter than that. I mean, all we know is that people are suffering over there, and so we just tried oh. really hard, especially oh. because of our connection and the foragers and farmers that we work with, to make sure that we do our part to, to just kind of get them whatever is in our power to make this period uh, a little bit less uh, um, difficult. Well, at least you can figure something to do most of us are just sitting staring at the at the tv news and feeling helpless yeah you know one of the things that we recommended in our most recent newsletter that we also shared a kind of 17 minute audio recording from our partner in afghanistan uh which is which is a really to hear the account directly from him um will, will give you some insight on what kind of life is like being an afghan dad with two daughters and trying to plan for the future at a time like this. Um, but is that access on your website? Yes, yes. You can find that on our website. You can find it on our social media. Uh, anywhere, if you just type burlap and barrel into Google, um, you'll, you'll end up in a place where you can find it. But one of the things that we can do in America is there's going to be a lot of refugees that get resettled in the U.S. Uh, over the coming weeks and months. And oftentimes those refugee resettlement programs are pretty tightly strapped and the refugees don't get a ton of support in their new homes. And so if you look in your city, there's guaranteed to be a, a nonprofit that's supporting new refugees here because it's one thing to be able to get out of the country and make it to America, and then it's another thing to be able to get your feet on the ground here and get your new life up and running. And so there, there many of them are looking for clothing and, and, you know, toiletries and all kinds of other goods to just be able to help a new immigrant to this country be able to, to get their life up and running here. It was some months ago, Ori, and I can't remember just exactly how many months, but we talked to uh, a, a lady who had migrated to Adelaide, South Australia, from Afghanistan, and I think, that, I think they had a restaurant there in, in Adelaide, and it was really, their, their story was a the kind of moving story that, of which you, I'm sure, and, and, and Ethan have Dozens and dozens. Yeah. Stories. Yeah. Stories. But, I mean, the, yeah. the thing is that you really have made an impact in a way that you probably couldn't have even predicted when you started out. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the farmers, like, early on, like, we would go to them and be like, hey, can we get, you know, 50 pounds of this spice? And they would entertain us because they thought we were a funny group of people <laughs> that – that, that had some big ideas, um, and they'd be like, sure. And then literally oftentimes they'd go in the luggage underneath the airplane because that was a lot cheaper 
to import it that way than to work with a freight forwarder or logistics or like all this and that. And so we just bring it with us. And plus we get to know the farmers and we get to stay with them and, and, you know, have meals with them and all that. And now we're, we're bringing in kind of, we're, we're now the biggest customer for many of our farmers and for a handful of them, we're their only customer. We just take everything that they grow. And so, so it's been, that's what our 2020 impact report is about about how 2020 we sourced more spices than all years of our company combined. And we keep doing that every year in the way that we grow. And so we went from this like funny, funny little company that was just, uh, just uh, was being entertained by the farmers as their smallest customer uh, into, into one that's actually being able to move more money directly into the hands of the farmers. And they're able to use it to build up their communities and build prosperity and, and to, kind of make the case for farmers being able to export their own stuff and to have a lot more agency and control over the process rather than a network of middlemen kind of standing there and, and eating the bulk of the, you know, margin. Now, we, we, we've talked a lot about Afghanistan, but give our listeners an idea of the range of countries from which you procure spices. The, the list is quite, quite amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just for, let's see, I even, I have this even written down here, but just for, for 2020, we brought in spices from Afghanistan, Egypt, Ethiopia, Grenada, Guatemala, Iceland, India, Indonesia, Mexico, Nigeria. We actually also brought in spices from the U.S. for the first time, um, which was really fun. I think we had talked a little bit about the wild ramp leaves, uh, chili yeah. peppers from California, um, and even salt from upstate New York. It turns right. out that under Syracuse is one of the largest salt deposits in the world. Um, that the Syracuse Salt Museum claims was one of the reasons why the North won the Civil War was because the North had access to salt under Syracuse and was able to preserve their meat and their food better so they could feed their army better than the South could. Now, did, didn't we talk about that the last time we were yeah, on the we phone did. together? Yeah. That's right. I, I, I That's right. I just I really like that, that my, fact. I told you that my, my <laughs> mother and father my mother and father enjoyed Syracuse salts. Yeah. 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 Famous for their salt boiled potatoes. But I won't repeat myself then. Fine. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, what is your Gorilla Ice Cream initiative? Yeah. So Ethan and I, our first business together was back in 2010, and we called it Gorilla Ice Cream. And that was, we had an ice cream business, uh, uh, inspired by flavors from revolutions all over the world. We donated our profits to charity. It was kind of our training wheels business back in 2010 to say that, yes, we like working together, and, yes, we, we want to keep creating social enterprises. And so, so many people helped us out with that business and with this business, too, that we just said we have a new initiative. It's called Gorilla Ice Cream, and we are here to talk to entrepreneurs and give them kind of open, honest, support in, in whatever they need. And so we kind of have an agreement that whoever reaches out to us, um, we, will, we will sit down with and talk to them and, and work with them. A lot of people treat their, like, information on how to run a business and what oh, the margins no, are that. and all this and that as proprietary. And, like, yeah, we have that. nothing to hide. We can tell you everything we do, and hopefully it will help make a more diverse and interesting set of food entrepreneurs. Um, to kind of, you know, bring especially entrepreneurs of color, and there's many other entrepreneurs that are have been historically excluded from the process. And so we just want to open the doors for, for as many people, and it literally costs us nothing but a little bit of our time to sit with entrepreneurs and help them avoid some of the pitfalls that we either made ourselves and learned the hard way to avoid, or 
kind of that, that people gave us advice when we were a younger company, like how can we pay it forward? So that's what that program is about. Yeah, we, one of the reasons we get together every every month or so is because you have some wonderful new taste sensation that our that our listeners can try. So, so what's up this time, Ari? So, I wanted to walk you through two Indian spices that we recently landed in our in our shop. The first one is an Alfonso mango amchur, and for the uninitiated. Amchur is a dried, salted, underripe mango. It's a green mango. And so oftentimes what it's made of, it, it's, a, it's a critical ingredient. You know, if, if, you're, if, if you go to any Indian pantry, they will, they will have amchur somewhere in there. And so it's sour, it's tart, it's bright. It, it really blends beautifully with all kinds of different flavors. And you can really use it, just start by you just sprinkling it on top of things. It's great in popcorn, on fish. It's really great where you use even a squeeze of lemon or lime. But what's really special about this amchur is that it's made out of Alfonso mangoes. And so we got to meet with a family farm that's been maybe a four or five generation family farm growing Alfonso mangoes, which people consider the champagne of mangoes, the Cadillac of mangoes, whatever you want. They're what color are they? Season. What color they're, they're are they? They're bright orange. They're known for sweetness. They're known for being very okay. fragrant. And they're known for having very like soft and, and, and delicious kind of uh, meat. The, the, why is it the taste that comes out of them sour? Uh, so the reason is, so here's, here's how Amchur is used. So Amchur is made from the underripe Alfonso mangoes, the ones that we get. And so mm-hmm. as they grow the Alfonso mangoes, some fall off the tree underripe, some get picked underripe. And so instead of throwing those away, we ask them to make Amchur with them. And so it's purposely oh, nice. meant to be this like tart, flavor-brightening, you know, uh, uh, ingredient. Um, and so what they do is they take the green mangoes that haven't become fully ripe and fully sweet yet, they kind of remove the skin, they remove the flesh, and then they, they salt it, chop it up, and lay it out in a dryer, and then grind it all down when it's dry. And so it's meant to be this, like, sour and tart and, and very, like, delicately sweet spice, but, but it's really used mostly in kind of savory cooking. Uh-huh. Now, um, what actually can anybody expect to happen um, to the actual farmers, the production of, of all these uh, spices right now in, in Afghanistan? Yeah, so in many, many places, and similarly to how, like, the U.S., like, the food production industry was, was allowed to continue, you know, during, during the pandemic, during all these times of uncertainty, you know, nobody wants to cut off the kind of food supply because that's that's what people need to be able to to continue to to exist and so it, it's all very uncertain of what it's going to happen and 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 who's going to step in and in what way but but typically food food production is is usually allowed to continue international export who knows you know even during the pandemic one of the issues in India was that there were often like seasonal workers that would travel around and help to pick spices. Spices are especially very much so the work is done by hand. There's very little machine and animal labor involved in spices. It relies on the power of people. And so what ended up happening in a lot of places around India is that the farmers were allowed to continue farming, but they didn't have the labor that would normally come in and help them tend to the fields and pick the fruit and the seeds and and the leaves and and all that. And Mm -hmm. so many, even though many of the food supply chains were allowed to continue, um, 
they, many fields kind of ended up not getting tended to because the people weren't available to be able to work and because we weren't allowed to travel in between. And so one issue is domestic travel where just things need to move around the country in an efficient way, especially with fresh food and fresh produce. And then number two for us is also the international export. Uh, if, the, if the airports aren't working, if international travel isn't happening, then, then it can be really hard for us to get all the things that we're used to getting from abroad into the U.S., um, and so what we'll have available to us, we'll kind of shrink down to what what can be produced domestically. Well, you know, when I look over your list, um, it's, it's amazing how widespread the, the disruptions would be based on the countries. I mean, like Peru is not a piece of cake right now either. Yeah. Yeah, and the other bigger disruption, and we've talked about this, you know, in previous times, is also just the point of climate change. Almost all of our farmers are having talks with us about harvest happening early, happening late, rainfall not coming, all this and that. So even beyond the man-made political unrest that we right. have, um, th- th- there's also a, a broader amount of, of, of kind of nature disruption that's happening. And, you know, humanity exists within a pretty narrow band of temperatures, spices even more so that grow in tropical and subtropical areas. And so uh, we're, we're kind of keeping an eye out on that. We don't have much to do other than to support farmers that are growing regeneratively and organically and doing all these things that, that are hopefully a net positive on the environment. But, but yeah, there, there's now two, two directions that are, that are making it harder to grow spices. Um, now, you, you haven't really talked to us about black mineral salt. Now, you said for uh, a long time you didn't take... You didn't uh, uh, sell salt or deal with salt because it was not a spice, it was a mineral. And then you, yeah, you yeah, got the upstate New York one, and now you have, what's black mineral salt? So black mineral salt is actually, the color of it is white, <laughs> but, but <laughs> the way that it comes out of the kiln is, is completely black and these black fragments. It kind of ends up with a light, white, kind of purplish hue. But black mineral salt is another kind of classic spice in, in, in the Indian kind of pantry. Um, and what's really interesting about it is that it's mineral salt, so it comes out of the ground. And then and mineral salt is always nice because it's been in the ground for so long before we had plastics and microplastics was a thing, before any of that stuff. It's just really, really clean salt. What they do is they put it in a kiln with a handful of spices, um, that, that kind of like some barks and leaves and this and that, and they, they cook it at temperatures above 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit, which That's melts the salt, and the salt melts down into this, like, black, shiny rock, you know, that with wow. the spices incorporated into it. And then they grind it using a really powerful grinding machinery into a powder. The chemicals of the salt change throughout that cooking process, and some people call it sulfur salt. Some people call oh, yeah. it kind of mineral salt or black salt. In, in Hindi, it's called kala namak. And so you get this kind of like almost like an eggy smell to it. And that's one of the reasons why it's a favorite amongst vegans. If you ever have had like a tofu scramble, you know, from a vegan restaurant or a vegan friend's house, it almost always uses the salt. You get this kind of like savory, eggy flavor to things that otherwise wouldn't have it. And so it it does a really nice job replicating that. I just like to use it in place of salt in, in a lot of my cooking. It's a very fine salt, so it dissolves very quickly. It's not a texture salt or a finishing salt. It's a very nice cooking salt. And so I just like to set it for salt to just add a little bit of a, add that saltiness, but add also some of that, like, kind of egginess to things. 
Yeah. I've taken to, um, actually, it was after consultation with Ethan about, you know, if you put um, salt in in a regular salt mill, eventually it just rusts out and you might as well forget it, right? It destroys the mill. But um, and and I was having, I don't know how many times I've tried different mills and always ended up with a mess. And so Ethan said, um, "Get a salt pig." Well, I mean I don't have a salt pig, but I have I have a, a wide mouth jar, um, and and I've been mixing salts together, which you probably won't yeah. approve of. Will you approve of that? No, that's totally fine. And you know what? Salt or something that you don't need to grind fresh. It's a mineral. It doesn't like. Right. lose its flavor like like something that's made of organic matter of stuff or something that's made out of like you know it's not like a fruit or produce or anything like that so people grind salt because it's fun but it doesn't impact the freshness of the salt in any way and so you can get free ground salt it's easier to control the quantity if you know it's two turns of the mill <laughs> yeah that's that's totally fair but it, I think it is really nice. Like, we should be making our own spice blends. And in general, people rely pretty heavily on, like, salt and fat and sugar for flavor. But spices are almost all, like, calorically, like, zero, but add so much flavor. And so, so it's also nice to kind of make your own flavored salts and all that. stuff. So and you'll see that you'll be cutting down on your salt intake if you make your own, like, salt spice blends. Yeah, well, I mean, there there are different structures of salt, which is why they have different uh, – Dis- dissolving um, times and stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely, right. And so, like our our um, our Selena salt is really uh, a finishing salt. It's it's got this like kind of crunchy structure. So if you put it early on in the dish, it'll just melt away. So you yeah. might as well just use a regular salt, a table salt, a kosher salt, or something like that. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, the finer salts dissolve more quickly and spread more evenly out in your food, which which generally you want unless you're using a finishing salt to just do like little dots of kind of crunchy flavor on it. Yeah, that's what I've been doing, yeah. Now, when are you and Ethan going to be able to travel again? Yeah, it's been, it's been really uh, challenging during the pandemic since so much of our business is based on spending face-to-face time with our partner farmers. Yeah, I um, worry about them being feeling alone. I'm, I don't know why I got this idea, but I did. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it is, we've been trying to kind of stay in touch as much as we can over WhatsApp, over Facebook Messenger, however they want to talk to us. Um, but, but you know what, like, it, it's not the same, and so much of our relationships are built on trust because yeah. we're not just some random people that, like, send an email and move stuff. It's like all the farmers have their own ways of doing things and have done so for years, for generations, for, you know, for, for long periods of time. We don't just show up. We we, we spend time, we stay on the farm, we, we meet them and their families. And so really this model is so much more based on, on kind of um, building those kinds of relationships. But what I would say is that we've also found that, that um, many kids of the farmers have moved back home. And we've built a lot of relationships in that way where the, the kid or the niece or the nephew or whatever of the farmer says, hey, there's a company in America, they're working directly with farmers, we should email them. And then they get in touch with us over Instagram or Facebook or our website. And we've, we've built a, a meaningful amount of new sourcing relationships by, by, because the younger generation is back on the family farm and they're all of a sudden find themselves engaged with what's being grown or how it's being sold or all of that. And that's been a kind of funny side effect of the pandemic is, is kids going back home 
and all of a sudden learning a little bit more about their family business, which, you know, hopefully that means that we'll have a new generation of young farmers that's now excited and it's going to actually stick around even when they can travel again. Yeah, and all of this, of course, helps keep your motivation up when um, it's, a, it's a struggle with all this going on, starting with climate change and then the, uh, all the other stuff and the political stuff and the, you know, the humanitarian issues and all of that comes into it. But you have to stay up the whole time, don't you, you and Ethan? Yeah, and that's what we've been trying to find out. Like this year we've like, now we buy our spices annually at the harvest because we get the highest quality of spices and the farmers are also happier because we were able to, like, you know, give them, a, you know, their year's worth of money all, all at once, right, for mm-hmm. what they've been working on. And so we've been trying to change our, our ways to just make sure that we have spices, they're here, and, and that we're able to kind of continue to make commitments to our partner farmers and keep growing. And the other nice thing about this is that we've seen that many of our partner farmers are, are training their neighbors or bringing in other people from the community onto the farm or all that. So... Our partner farmers from Indonesia, uh, uh, we buy all of their fermented white pepper. So he said, hey, I have two neighbors. I've shown them how I grow. Do you want to, like, if you want more than what you're getting, can, can, can I bring them in on this? And we're oh, like, absolutely. Great. Send us samples. Let's see what they've got. But it, it becomes from a single farmer into a community endeavor. And so that's been one way where, where the farmers have been able to kind of band together. And, you know, if, if what we are bringing in is stuff that's grown organically and regeneratively and, and, and handled with a great care, um, then bringing other people in the community into that style of, of farming is, is always uh, a really positive kind of side effect of what we get to do. Ori, I think it was the last time we, we, we had you on, we were talking about some ingredient from Nigeria. And I just, the Iru. And I just, oh, saw, yeah, we love I just saw an article about it in the Economist magazine, which I read faithfully. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very good. I think like, we have, so like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. So word is spreading, right? The word is spreading. I mean, it's Yeah, I mean, in general, in our grocery stores, we don't have great biodiversity, right? Like, the apples <laughs> that we like are, like, uh, the banana, the this, like, it's all, like, one breed. And so anytime yeah, we get a chance to kind of introduce somebody to something that's new and interesting and will make their food taste a lot better, we take it. Have you been cooking with it? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, from when you started explaining it to us, we found it really useful, and and we love it. We've become attached to uh, certain spices over and over again. Oh yeah, wild, I mean, wild mountain cumin is one of them, but another one, another one we like is uh, black lime. Oh yeah, we yeah. I use black lime on everything. So, yeah, but, um, that's, that, no, the black just, lime has been a real surprise hit. Like most people have never used it in that format, but they mm-hmm. get it. And once you start using it, you can't stop. No, I mean, we're addicted to it, absolutely. And, and it was, you know, you, you saved us a, a lot of effort because I had tried. I knew about black lime, but I tried actually making my own black limes. I told you that story. And I mean, I, yeah, I had a lot of people and chefs and all that make their own the, black lines, and it's so much work. <laughs> oh, it is. And I had it almost ready. And uh, I mean, I knew a French chef in, in the UK who, who made black lines. But anyhow, I had it almost ready, and my housekeeper threw it out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> that was not good. So, listen, um, make sure, I mean, I, I want the listeners to actually go on your website because it's so rich in information and, and, and they can connect better uh, and sign up for this newsletter and read these individual stories of the growers. Uh, give us your website once more, Tom. Yeah, sure. Our website is Burlap and Barrel. That's B-U-R-L-A-P-A-N-D-B-A-R-R-E-L dot com. You can also type Burlap and Barrel into uh, into Google. You can find us on Instagram. But we really try to share where where your foods come from because most people don't even know what kind of a plant produces peppercorns or where <laughs> cinnamon comes from. And if you want the answers to those questions, you can come and visit our site. Great. Well, as always, I thank you enormously, and I hope things straighten out for Ethan's family. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I'll pass it along to him. Thank you for saying that. Please do. Well, as I said, thank you always and always and again, Ori, and we'll be in touch. Um, Listeners, Ori, Burlap and Barrel is a regular feature on On the Menu Radio. And thank you. Ciao, ciao, Ori. Peace and stay safe. Don't hesitate to add some spice to your life. And, uh, yeah, well, we do it all the time, right? Do we? We sure do. Yeah. We sure do. <laughs> and and you, 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 you've got to go to the website. It's a positive fount of fascinating information that's available there. And uh, you, should, you should, take, should take advantage of the insight that you can get into how to make your food more interesting, shall we say, spicier. <laughs> Needless to say, we will be back same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye.